Approach to Farming in Southern Rhodesia by L.T. Tracy, farmer of Chakari, Southern Rhodesia, published in 1945 by the University of London Press Limited and issued by authority of the Minister of Agriculture. Here's a quote from Sir Thomas Overbreeze, character of a yeoman, at the start of this book. Though he be a master, he says not to his servant, go to the field, but let us go, and with his own eye doth fatten his flock and set forward all manner of husbandry. This book will be narrated by John MacRobert, and we will go in segments, probably chapter by chapter. Please note that because we are now in 2022, I have changed references in the book to Rhodesia to Zimbabwe. So let us begin. Chapter 1. The Soil It is not intended in this chapter to go into the basic scientific discoveries that have been made during the last hundred years or so in regard to the attributes of soil and its function as the home of plants, but rather to present some ideas on Zimbabwean conditions and soil management. If Zimbabwe were sunk to within a hundred feet of sea level and were to be given an all-round-the-year rainfall and a more temperate climate, Zimbabwean farmers would have to adopt entirely different methods from those commonly practiced now, even though the soil were basically the same in makeup. In fact, such soil would be an entirely different home for plant life. Different plants would flourish, different chemical reactions would occur. The animal life of the soil from insects and worms down to bacteria would change. Dead vegetation would go through a different decomposition and the color of the soil would probably change as well. But we have to take Zimbabwean soils as we find them and they are as they are because of the centuries of rainy seasons and annual droughts that lie behind, because of the high average temperatures of most parts of the country, because of the felt fires that have burnt off all but the hardiest herbage and because those factors have combined to cause the washing away of a great deal of topsoil into the rivers and so down to the ocean. As farming is, or should be, a matter of cooperating with nature, it is well to consider the balance that nature had attained before white settlers came to this country. It was mainly a country of grass and scrub bush, carrying a very small head per acre of wild animals and native cattle. The grass died off in the winter, and as part of the balance was man who had discovered the use of fire, great fires raged over the face of the country, burning off every dry thing and destroying a large portion of the tree seedlings that had germinated during the previous rains. Only those hardy grasses that had withdrawn sufficient plant food into their roots to withstand the long drought were able to survive the fires. Only a few seedling trees of hardy, more or less fire-resistant species came through. Consequently, a balance of grass to trees came into existence, which would have been very different but for the felt fires. In many parts of the country, the climax would have been a wilderness of thorn scrub without grass, useless to man and beast. The types of grasses that survive fires are mainly tussock grasses, which do not make a mat on the ground, and when their top growth is burnt off, a considerable portion of the ground is exposed to the blazing sun and to the first downpours of rain in the spring. For centuries we may assume that the earlier rains have carried away a portion of topsoil, especially on the hillsides and wherever animals have pulverized the soil along their tracks to watering places. 
man in small numbers living a semi-nomadic existence as a pastoralist and cultivating only small patches of soil for a couple of years at most and moving on probably did not do very much to affect the natural balance except as the agent of the felt fires. Effects of temperature. Another potent factor in the makeup of Zimbabwean soils is that of temperature. All life, whether animal or vegetable, needs suitable food, air, water and a congenial temperature. The soil is the home not only of plants but also of animal life, insects and minute forms of animal life that are known as microorganisms. Plants build up and animal life breaks down. Plants living on simple substances found in the soil, such as carbon dioxide, build up complex organic matter with the help of the sun's rays. Animals, which include the microorganisms, consume these vegetable products, converting them into their own substance and energy until they eventually die and become, in turn, food for plants. And thus the eternal cycle revolves. But it does not revolve at the same speed all round the year. In temperate climates, the soil temperatures drop in the winter to a point that is inimical to all life and the process slows down and almost stands still. Plant growth stops and the microorganisms of the soil cease to function in spite of the fact that three of the requisites, food, air and water, are present. The low temperature is the controlling factor. In Zimbabwe, the cycle also shows up in the dry months. But this is mainly on account of the drying out of the soil very soon after the rainy season ends. However, there is another factor that plays a large part in the makeup of Zimbabwean soils and limits the amount of food available for plants. It is due to high temperatures and is peculiar to subtropical countries, which have not an all-round-the-year rainfall to keep the soil cool by evaporation. It must be understood that vegetation, when dead, goes through sundry processes of decomposition. Animals eat and digest it, extracting the protein to make growth and energy, and the carbohydrates to burn up for the body heat and to lay on store of fat. And they discard as dung what they cannot make use of. Insects consume it and probably take into use for their own bodies a large proportion of it than the higher animals. And then the microorganisms work on the balance of unconsumed vegetation and the partially broken down dung of the higher animals and convert it into a dark brown or black matter known as humus. This is of supreme importance to plant life, for without it, even though all other necessary chemical elements be present, the plant will not flourish. It consists of vegetation that has been broken down into a state that is beyond what can be called vegetable matter. And this is combined with the dead bodies of microorganisms which have been feeding on the dead vegetation. Disappearance of humus. Unfortunately for Zimbabwean agriculture, Humus oxidizes very rapidly and disappears from the soil when soil temperatures rise beyond a certain critical point. In the absence of water, the soil population is reduced considerably. But with the first rains, regeneration takes place at a tremendous pace, and some of the humus disappears before the planted crops can get the benefit of it. This rapid disappearance is shown by the absence of leaf mold anywhere in Zimbabwe except at altitudes over 5,500 feet or on the eastern border where winter rains cool the soil or in very densely shaded spots near streams, such as the rainforest at the Victoria Falls. This fact is of prime importance in Zimbabwean agriculture and has to be taken into account in all farming practices. To maintain the optimum amount of humus in the soil needs careful planning in the light of this fact.
Even though vegetable matter be incorporated in the soil to make fresh humus, it will be of little avail if it is ploughed in at such a time that it will mostly become humus before the subsequent crop is growing and therefore in a position to make use of it. Again, dung or compost does not last as long in the soil as it would in cooler climates, and it is even more essential than in most countries to carry crop wastes off the fields and to make dung or compost of them with the aid of livestock and then to carry them back to the fields. Soil bacteria and green manuring. It is not enough that vegetable matter be ploughed into the soil to build up humus. The type of plants used must be taken into consideration. As far as it is known, grasses, which include such plants as maize, do not collect nitrogen from the air and fix it in the soil to any appreciable extent. Nor, when they are mature, have they very much nitrogen in their makeup. Legumes such as beans or sun hemp, on the other hand, do extract nitrogen from the air and by means of nodules on the roots pass it into the soil where it is fixed. In addition, such plants contain a certain percentage of nitrogen stored in their tissues. Now, if non-leguminous plants are incorporated into Zimbabwean soils, the soil bacteria attack them and break them down, but the bacteria need nitrogen to keep them alive and active. As there is little nitrogen in, for example, the grass they are consuming, they have to obtain their requirements from the never large store in the soil itself. This robbing of the soil leads to what is known as nitrogen starvation and is often plainly visible in a crop that has been planted after a grass crop has been ploughed down. The leaves turn yellow and the plant makes poor growth until such time as the bacteria have completed their work and the grass has been turned into humus. It is for this reason that legumes are preferred in our agriculture for green manuring. The soil needs a certain balance to be maintained between carbon and nitrogen. If there is a large increase of carbon put into the soil, as when a crop of grass is ploughed in, without a corresponding increase of nitrogen, the fertility of the soil is reduced temporarily and crop failure may be expected. For the ploughing down of a leguminous crop for green manure, there is a time factor that is always to be taken into consideration by the farmer. Plenty of nitrogen is then available for the soil organisms and provided the necessary water, air and temperature are present, they tackle the job immediately and at a fast rate. The crop very quickly rots down into humus and as was pointed out above, this quickly oxidizes and disappears at high soil temperatures. In practice, it has been found that by ploughing the crop down late when the soil is drying out, the soil bacteria have insufficient moisture to do their work and the crop remains unrotted in the soil throughout the dry season. As soon as the new rains fall, the rotting and consequent liberation of nitrogen takes place, and this nitrogen can then be beneficially used by the young crop instead of wasting its sweetness on the desert air, as would occur if the crop were ploughed under while the soil was still wet. It is because of this quick liberation of nitrogen at the beginning of the new rainy season that it is good farm practice to plant the green manure fields first, so as to make the fullest use of it. Principles Governing Farmyard Manure This principle applies not only to green manuring, it concerns also the making of farmyard manure or compost. It has been determined that vegetable matter that contains no more than 1.5% of nitrogen, and that includes all straw such as maize trash, should be used in conjunction with animal wastes to bring up the nitrogen percentage and so bring about a breakdown that will not result in starving the field crop of nitrogen. In farming practices, this means carting the straw or trash into cattle yards where it will be cracked up by the animal's feet 
and where it will become impregnated with their dung and urine. Actually, of the two, the urine is the richer in nitrogen, and for that reason, a deep bedding down with crop wastes is more economical than a shallow one where the urine may soak through into the ground or be evaporated. Of recent years, farmers have increasingly composted their farm wastes instead of carting them into the field in a semi-rotted condition as farmyard manure. There is good reason for this. A far larger proportion of the crop waste can be used without fear of nitrogen starvation, as the breakdown into humus occurs at the farmstead instead of in the soil. The nitrogen of the dung and urine is better utilized, as very little passes off into the air as free ammonia, as happens with fresh manure from horse stables where the ammonia is often enough to sting the eyes and can be detected a long way off by the nose. Further, compost has a smaller bulk than farmyard manure and is lighter than the original material of which it is made. It is also more easily distributed in the field. However, it must not be thought that all composts are of the same value. Just as with farmyard manure, their values as a fertilizing agent for the field crop vary with the food consumed by the animals that tread them. The dung of the grass-fed beast is very inferior to that of animals being fed concentrates on a liberal scale. It is probable also that a far larger amount of waste can be satisfactorily composed per beast in the latter case. Chemical elements in the soil. What has been said so far refers chiefly to soil life and the cycle of life and death that provides the nitrogen for fresh plant growth. But it must be remembered that for centuries the acre of Zimbabwean soil from which the farmer hopes to reap 10 or 15 bags of maize has grown no more than a light crop of grass and a few scrubby trees. There are certain limitations which have prevented the soil from giving more. And as the farmer must have a larger production, he must know what these limiting factors are and correct them where possible. In all, 10 chemical elements are recognized as being necessary for normal plant growth, but the number liable to rapid exhaustion by the removal of crops is generally limited to three, nitrogen, potash, and phosphorus. There are few, if any, Zimbabwean soils that do not start with the initial disadvantage of being short of phosphorus and that is the first shortage that has to be made good. This can be done only by the application of phosphates in the form of raw rock phosphate, superphosphate or bone meal. True, it can be supplied to a certain extent in farmyard manure, but this is very rarely available in such quantities as to allow the farmer to rely on this alone for his soil's requirements of phosphorus. It would also be wasteful to use it to that end alone for in most cases it would be giving an excessive quantity of nitrogen to the crop. And nitrogen is the most expensive of all the nutrients which plants need. Whether it is bought in a bag, obtained from the air by growing a leguminous green manure crop, or by applying farmyard manure. Function of the main elements. The functions of these three elements are mainly these. Nitrogen is essential for the formation of protein bodies and is intimately connected with the development of leaf and stem of the plant. It is therefore of particular importance for plants such as tobacco, cabbages and grasses. Potash promotes tone and vigor and tends to increase the plant's power of resistance to bad weather conditions and disease. It also favors the formation of starch in the grain plants such as wheat or maize. Phosphorus is essential to the growth of all plants. It promotes root development, 
which is highly desirable in a country that suffers frequently from droughts in the growing season, and early maturity. It also helps in the formation of seed or grain. For most field crops in Zimbabwe, if the farmer keeps his land in good heart by correct tillage, green manuring and composting, his main concern will be in keeping up the phosphorus requirements of his soil. The other elements may usually look after themselves, except for certain special crops such as tobacco or potatoes, and their requirements are dealt with elsewhere. Farming as an art. A great deal of what has been said so far may appear to be in the realms of theory, because it concerns matters which cannot be seen or handled, and so have to be taken on faith from the scientist. Only the results can be observed, and these have justified the faith that farmers have placed in the recommendations of the soil chemists. But over and above all considerations of plant foods and the work of soil bacteria is the very art of farming. Farming was an art long before it became a science. The art of cultivation has been practiced and improved by countless generations of men. Their object, under vastly varying conditions, has been the attainment of a soil structure which is best suited to the growth of crops. Men have learned by their mistakes how best to handle their soils, what implements are best to use, the right times to use them, the sort of manure to apply to improve the texture, the sequence of crops that will do least damage and will result in a free working soil. These are things of the utmost importance. And if a farmer fails in his art and does damage to his land, its fertility will disappear and is living with it. Ideal soil conditions. The ideal which he has to keep in mind and to work to attain is a soil consisting of small crumbs which like a crumb of bread are loosely held together with plenty of air space between the particles. It will contain a high proportion of visible vegetable matter such as small fibrous rootlets and it will show dark stains where old vegetation has turned to humus. Such a soil will allow the passage of implements through it with the minimum of resistance. It will allow water to percolate through it and the rootlets of growing plants free access. It will hold water like a sponge and it will resist the scouring action of water flowing over it. It will therefore be full of soil life and can be built up into a high state of fertility. Clay colloids. Each type of soil has to be worked, cropped and handled in a different way to attain and maintain this desirable condition. This is so because the grains of decomposing rock that go to make the gritty part of the soil vary according to the formation from which it has been derived. And as soils in the making have traveled downhill through the centuries, their composition alters as they go down towards the bottoms. Every soil has its proportion of clay particles called colloids, a word which means like glue. A heavy soil has a high proportion and a high upland granite soil has very little. Their function in the soil is not yet completely understood, but in practice one knows that they can either help to hold the crumbs of soil loosely together or to turn them into hard clods and to act, as their name implies, like glue. Take river sand, which is soil from which all the clay particles have been washed, and puddle it with water. It will be the same after it as before. Take a nice crummy loam, however, and mix it with water and work it into a thick mud. When it has dried out, it will be a hard clod with a minimum of air in it. Water penetrates it only very slowly. Consequently, it has become an extremely poor home for soil life 
or for plant life. And it is only by weathering over many years that it will loosen up and become fertile soil once more. Or again, take a few handfuls of one of our light granite soils, extract the grass roots from it, break it up small and pour water through it, let it dry and then pulverize it again and pour more water through it. The final result will be river sand. The finest particles will have disappeared. It will consist of coarse grains with nothing to hold them together. It will not hold water. The humus will have been washed out together with all other plant foods. Nothing except the hardest and the most useless plants will grow in it, and so it will remain over a number of years until it has been built up again by the gradual reappearance of plant life and its decomposition in the damaged soil. Effects of Soil Pulverization Those two simple experiments concern wet soil, but Zimbabwean soils are dry for many months of the year and they are almost as vulnerable when dry as when wet. So take a sample of good fertile soil and break it down with a pestle and mortar. Blow at it, stir it about and blow again. A cloud of fine dust will go off into the air. If the blowing and stirring is continued long enough, only the coarse particles will remain. But that is not all. If after grinding it up and without blowing off the dust it is placed in a glass jar and a similar quantity of the original soil be placed in another, one can see the extent of the damage that the fine grinding has caused. Water poured onto the original soil can be seen to percolate steadily right through to the bottom. Water will penetrate only a short way into the other, and slowly at that. Carry the experiment further, one might measure the amount of water that each will absorb, and if further practical, from the point of view of a farmer, demonstration is needed. A maize pit planted in each pot will very readily show that what sort of slum home has been created for the plant by breaking down the soil. These little experiments simulate in miniature what bad farming can and does do to our Zimbabwean soils. Plowing or cultivating when the soil is too wet, working the soil to too fine a texture when it is dry, and leaving it exposed in that condition to the high winds and to torrential downpours of rain are the counterparts in farming of these experiments. It is not possible to lay down hard and fast rules for an art. One can only lay down principles for the practice of that art. Sometimes the farmer may be forced by circumstance to abuse the principles which he knows to be fundamentally right, such as when a run of wet weather has allowed his fields to get dirty and the crop is being choked by weeds. He then has to use his judgment as to when and if he will put cultivators onto the land to clean it even though he knows that clods will be the result. Basic Principles of Soil Management So to the principles by which we will guide his judgment. In the first place, he will not want to have water running over his fields from the felt above it, washing out the fine particles of the soil and leaving him river sand, or worse still, making gullies and removing holus bolus, the land by which he makes his living. So he will make storm drains above them, if he is wise, he will take advice as to their dimension, for a storm drain that bursts is almost worse than none at all. He can prevent water running onto his field, but he cannot prevent it falling on it. So if the land is on a slope, he will make contour ridges or use other means to prevent the water which falls on the field, gathering in depressions and forming streams that will scour the soil away. He will break his virgin land when it is damp and not too wet and work it down to not too fine a tilth, knowing 
that the coming rains will work it down much farther. Knowing that the depression left by the finishing furrow of the plough and the slight hollows left by cultivators or ridges are danger spots in which water will collect and cause erosion. He will plough across the slope and set his row crops across the slope also. He will do all in his power to prevent the necessity of working his land when it is at all wet. He will plan his farming so that some crops can be taken off early and so allow the plough to get going while there is still moisture enough in the soil to allow the furrow slice to turn over with a nice crumby texture and with the least damage to itself. As soil texture depends to a large extent on the amount of decomposing vegetable matter in it, he will plan his whole farming operations to provide this. He will keep livestock to make dung and he will plant green manure crops to make good any insufficiency in the dung supply. To keep his soil in good heart, i.e. to keep it in a high state of fertility, well supplied with plant food, he will plan a rotation of crops to suit his conditions and the requirements of his livestock. He will not plant his land continuously to one crop, for each crop makes its special demand on the soil in the way of plant foods and constant demands for the same plant foods will quickly impoverish the soil. He will bring legumes constantly into his rotation so as to replace the soil nitrogen extracted by previous crops such as maize. He will discover how often the whole crop should be given back to the soil as green manure. Further, although the inert subsoil from 6 to 8 inches down contains no readily available plant food, it acts as a store for water. So he will prevent a pan being formed at the bottom of the plough bed, which would cut it off from the topsoil. By planting deep-rooted crops, such as cotton, or by using a subsoiler, when his experienced eye shows him that a pan is formed, that is preventing the passage of soil water both upwards and downwards. The original fine crumb structure of virgin soil is formed in some way that is not yet fully understood by the action of grass roots and their exudates on the soil particles. Should the farmer find that he is losing that crumb structure and at any time and is not able to restore it by means of better tillage, green manuring or dunging, he will resort to nature's normal method and put the land back to grass for a period. The foregoing may be thought by the scientifically minded to be an oversimplification of an exceedingly complex and very wide subject. This may well be so. It is not intended to be more than a very sketchy outline of a subject that already has a very vast world literature that grows annually with the acquisition of new knowledge. The farmer who thinks at all deeply about his business cannot afford not to delve into the vast store of knowledge and to keep abreast of the times and of new discoveries. Thus ends chapter 1.